Before my ordination to the diaconate, I was fortunate to be able to spend a few days on a silent retreat at Belmont Abbey down near Charlotte. I wanted to do that because before I entered into my my new vocation, I wanted to be able to experience, even if just for a time, that great silence that can be hard to find outside of a monastery because I wanted to be able to listen more attentively to the voice of God. And while I was there, one of the, the only times that my silence was broken was for prayer. As monastics, they're Benedictine monks, they gather to pray the liturgy of the hours, what some people call the divine office, as a community on a very regular schedule. And guests at the monastery are welcome to join them in prayer, which I did each day for the office of readings, for morning prayer, for midday prayer, for evening prayer, for night prayer. Everything else in the monk's day, their meals, their work schedule, their leisure time, even their daily celebration of the Mass revolved around that daily schedule of prayer. And in doing that, they're they're just continuing a tradition of sanctifying time that goes all the way back to the ancient Jews. In Psalm 118, it says, seven times a day, I praise you. When it comes to, to the ways that the Jewish people worshiped and praised God, we might be more familiar with the great feasts that they celebrated on an annual cycle, right? Like Passover or, or Pentecost. But the, the ongoing, regular, everyday worship of the Jewish people was that sacrifice of praise that they offered to God in the temple on a regular schedule, every day, morning and evening. And so the first Christians continued in that tradition. We see this in the Acts of the Apostles, right? They would continue in that pattern of prayer, offering praise to God, primarily by making use of the Psalms, right? The Psalms, that divinely inspired book of prayers, on a schedule, morning, noon, and night, as a means of sanctifying the time that's been given to us by God. And this is what the church still does today in the Liturgy of the Hours, which is the primary prayer of the church. If you want to know how the church prays, you have to look at the liturgy of the hours. The mass is not the primary prayer of the church, although you know, we might be excused for, for thinking that, because it is the highest form of worship that we offer as a church. And we're obligated to celebrate it every single Sunday. But priests are not obligated to celebrate mass every day. Most priests do. Most do. But they're not obligated to. The clergy are, however, obligated to pray the liturgy of the hours every day. Not once, not twice, five times every day offering this prayer of praise to God. And it's not only prayed by monastics and by the clergy, but increasingly it's it's being prayed by the lay faithful who want to join with the church in that This has always been something that the lay faithful in the church have longed to do, to join with the official prayer of the church, even though they didn't have access to to the prayer books. 
right? Um, but back before the printing press, the monks in a, in a congregation would gather and they would read the prayers in common out of these giant books, right? They, they, one person could, could hold and turn the pages and everyone could read. There's a page from one of them uh, in the back of this church. You can see on your way out by the choir loft, right? And that's actually a small one. Some of them were really big. Uh, and, but the lay people couldn't have books like that. And so they would hear the church bells ringing and they would, knew that, they would know that the, the clergy were being called in to pray. And so they would stop what they were doing and they would offer prayers as best they could at that time. That's where the Angelus comes from, if you're familiar with the Angelus, and why the Angelus is traditionally prayed at certain times during the day, six, nine, noon, right? Because those were the times that the church bells would ring, calling the monks in or the clergy in to pray. Even the rosary has a connection with the liturgy of the hours. It's called Our Lady's Psalter because before uh, Pope St. John Paul II added the luminous mysteries, there were three mysteries to the rosary. Three times 50 is 150, and then you have the three Hail Marys that you begin the rosary with, that's 153, one for every psalm. And so if you couldn't pray through the psalms, when the Liturgy of the Hours, you would pray 153 Hail Marys. That's how the rosary got its start. But now, the breviaries, these prayer books, are much more affordable, much more accessible. You can even download them for free online, right? You can get them on your smartphone, the iBreviary app, it's free. So if you're looking for a way to add more prayer into your Advent, I suggest that you do that. And here at St. Mary's, we're going to be offering public celebrations of morning prayer and evening prayer from the Liturgy of the Hours three days a week, Monday, Thursday, and Friday. 7 a.m. for morning prayer, 6 p.m. for evening prayer. Takes about 15 minutes, but then we'll have a time, we'll have a holy hour of adoration afterwards. Right? So you can come anytime for that silent, and it'll be very simple adoration. There's, there's no solemn exposition, no benediction, but just a time of silence. So you can come and join in with the church in that official prayer of the church, and then stay in that period of silence and listen to God. I'm excited about this, so I encourage as many of you who can to come and enter into that spirit of prayer and silence during this season of Advent. So back to the monastery where I was in my season of prayer and silence before ordination. When I wasn't in the chapel praying the office with the monks, I was either in my room reading or I, was, I would go for walks on campus. If you've ever been to the Belmont Abbey campus, it's a beautiful campus. It's very picturesque, very peaceful, but it's also very near the highway. I-85 runs right by there, and as I was walking, it struck me that no matter where I was on campus, if I was outside, I could hear the noise of the highway. I could hear that, that roaring of traffic, and it was an odd juxtaposition for me that tranquility, that, that quiet of the monastery, and then the loud roar of the world outside, that industrial sound of trucks and cars just zooming by on all their different errands, right, that I could hear. And it was an unwanted intrusion into the peace that I had come there for. It seemed to say, don't get too used to the quiet. Don't get used to it. The real world is waiting for you out here. You can't escape from reality by hiding in the church. But it occurred to me 
on my last evening there, as I was sitting in the chapel, praying in silence, waiting for the monks to come in and begin their night prayer, that's reality. That's the real world. The real world is not the noise of the highway outside. The real world was the silence of the church. Because that noise of the highway and everything that it represents will one day be silenced. But the word of God endures forever. And I knew then in that moment that that world, the world that I was in within those brick basilica walls, a world of chanting and prayer in which our only focus was the praising of God, that's the real world. Today on this first Sunday of Advent, God is calling us to wake up to wake up to this real world. It is now the hour for you to wake from sleep, St. Paul tells us. Night is advanced and the day is at hand. Our Lord says in the gospel, stay awake. We need to wake up. We need to open our eyes to reality. And to do that, we need silence. We need to turn our usual thinking about silence and noise on its head. Because we usually think of silence as something we want to help put us to sleep. And we use noise to wake us up. But to wake up to this reality that our Lord is calling us to, we need to do the opposite. Because the noise of this world is what lulls us to sleep. It makes us drowsy so that our eyes become closed to eternal realities, and all that we see is what's temporary. And if we don't wake up, we start to believe that what's temporary is all that there is. We can mistake the dream for reality. And so we need to wake up. And to do that, we need to create for ourselves times of silence, We need to shut down the noise of the world, at least for a little while, so that we can hear the voice of God. We need to rise above the rush of time that's always pressing on us so that we can see what is eternal. We need to wake up to the reality that Almighty God, the Ancient of Days, who 2,000 years ago was born of the Virgin Mary and became man, will one day come again in glory, and he will be all in all. And that's what's real. That's all that's real. And if we're asleep, we'll miss it. Silence helps us to be awake. And it does this in two two ways. It helps us to prepare and it helps us to pray. It gives us the space in our lives that we need to do that, to direct our minds and hearts inward toward ourselves and then outward toward God. And we need to do both of these things, right? First, we need to look inward at ourselves. This might make some of us uncomfortable, 
How many of us, even devout Christians, fail to do this on a regular basis, to take a real honest look at ourselves? But that's absolutely necessary for a Christian life. We have to know ourselves. We have to know our minds, our hearts, our passions, our desires. We have to honestly assess, what is it that motivates me? Ask yourself the questions. How do I spend my time? To what do my thoughts tend? What are my true priorities? Not just what I say my priorities are, but what are they really? What does the evidence of my life show that I truly value? That sort of self-examination is absolutely essential for a Christian life if being a Christian is to mean anything beyond just giving a, a mental assent to the divinity of Christ. The point of being Christian is to be transformed. It's to become like Christ. God became man so that we might become like God. That's the point of it all. There's a beautiful prayer that I pray at Mass when I pour that little drop of water into the chalice. By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. The point of being Christian is to become like Christ. And if you're not interested in being Christ-like, find another religion. There are lots of other ones out there. But how can we do that? How can we become like Christ unless we know ourselves? How can we grow in virtue unless we know what virtues we lack? How can we ask God to make us holy and not admit of the ways in which we are not holy? How can we ask God to forgive us without acknowledging our sin? How can we accept Christ as our Savior if we don't even know what we need saving from? The very first name for the Christian religion was the way. The way. That tells us that it's all about going somewhere. The Christian life is like a road map that points us to God. And to use a map, there are two things you need to know, aren't there? You need to know where you're going, and you need to know where you're starting from. If we don't know ourselves, if we don't do that self-examination, then we don't know where we're starting from. So how can we expect to ever reach our destination? Advent is that time of year when the voice of John the Baptist once more cries out from the wilderness, repent and believe in the gospel. And to repent means to turn around. And sometimes we need to do this. We examine ourselves and we discover we've been going the wrong way. We need to turn around. And so once we do that self-examination, we turn away from our sins. We turn away from our disordered desires. We turn away from our selfish tendencies and we turn back toward the Lord. This is what we do in confession. If you haven't been to confession in a while, come here, Thursday, 6 p.m., six priests. I don't know where we're going to put them all. They'll be around somewhere. Six priests hearing confession. The lines will be short, and they'll stay as long as they need to stay to hear everyone's confession. But going to confession is only a means to an end. Confession is that reorientation. It helps to get us back on the way to God. So once we do that, 
Once we've done that self-examination, once we've repented and reoriented ourselves towards God, then we turn the attention of our minds and our hearts outward, away from ourselves and towards the one who made us, the one who redeemed us, and the one who even yet calls us to himself. We look upon him with longing, gazing on him, veiled in the sacraments, veiled in the scriptures, veiled in his holy church, with a longing in our hearts, knowing that one day we will see him, not his reflection in scriptures, signs, and sacraments, but him. We will see him unveiled, unfiltered, intimately, and immediately in the beatific vision. On that day, Jesus Christ will be all in all, and we will be his and he will be ours. That's the real world. That's the world that we pray for every time we pray, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. We see the dawn of that kingdom rising on the horizon. Whenever we lift up our minds and hearts to God in prayer, we're gazing into that dawn, that eternal reality. That's why all the ancient liturgies of the church were celebrated facing east, the direction of the rising sun. We turn ourselves in prayer towards the coming of the Lord. And each time we pray, whatever direction we're facing, we're orienting ourselves towards the light. We're turning our backs to that darkness of night and we're turning our faces towards the dawn. It might take a while for our eyes to adjust to the light. That's just part of waking up. The world out there and all its noise and all its cacophony and busyness doesn't want you to be awake. It wants to lull you to sleep with the siren song of its noise. It's a trick. Don't fall for it. Don't close your eyes to the light. Don't close your heart to Christ because he is coming. The night is advanced and the day is near at hand. Now is the hour for us to awaken from our sleep.